Please be seated. Good morning, my name is Susan. Thank you for being here, and thank you for letting me be here. I'm honored to be with the Trinity Congregation today. This past Wednesday, I was in the local Kroger hunting for my favorite oatmeal, which seems to get relocated every week, when someone I hadn't seen since high school 56 years ago recognized me, pretended to be glad to see me, and asked me what I was doing. I was tempted to say, about what? But I gave her a short summary and told her I'm in ministry. She said, like with kids or music? And I said, no, like with adults and elders and unhoused people. Well, you don't preach, do you? I told her that I do. She wrinkled up her nose disapprovingly like her Southern Baptist minister father used to do and asked, what do you preach about? I spared her all the gory details about inclusion and the seat at God's table for everyone and said, this coming Sunday, I'll be using several, several lectionary texts to talk about healing. Lectionary, she shouted to me and all the other shoppers in aisle six. Don't you know that's just for Episcopalians? <laughs> uh, the, the things we rightfully congratulate ourselves about for not saying. The Baptist church I grew up in did not and does not use the lectionary, and neither does the Unitarian denomination that ordained me. But I've discovered that I affirmatively like the structure and progression of lectionary learning, and I especially enjoy it when two or more of the texts seem to dance with each other. Sometimes they don't, but today they do. And I think that the Old Testament story of Naaman, as well as the gospel story about Jesus' sending out the 70 followers, and Paul's letter to the Galatians, offer us many lessons about healing, what it is, what it isn't, how we can receive it, and how we can offer it to others. I'm a great believer in two propositions. The first is that text without context is pretext, and the second is that we have a spiritual obligation as people of faith and as a community of interpreters to look at the stories in the sacred texts of our Judeo-Christian heritage in order to discern their application to our lives. To briefly summarize the Old Testament story of the healing of Naaman found in the fifth chapter of 2 Kings, Naaman was an impressive and powerful commander in the army of Assyria, which had conquered the northern part of Israel around the 8th century BC. But Naaman had leprosy, and when his wife's servant girl said that the Israelite prophet Elisha might be able to heal him, he loaded up his chariots with servants and clothing and huge sums of money and went to meet Elisha. Long story short, when Naaman arrived at Elisha's house, Elisha would not come out to meet him and instead sent a messenger with the advice that Naaman should wash himself seven times in the Jordan River so he could be healed of his leprosy. 
Naaman was so enraged at receiving Elisha's advice secondhand that he turned around to go home. But his servants persuaded him to try the simple thing Elisha had suggested. So Naaman followed Elisha's advice, washed in the Jordan, was cured of leprosy, and was healed into the newness of a relationship with the God of the Hebrews. I am very partial to memorable Old Testament stories like this one, partly because I read Hebrew about 17 times better than I read Greek, but mostly because usually there is an even richer story behind the presenting story. On the surface, today's lectionary story about the healing of Naaman is a predictable cautionary tale. A stubborn, proud, important, archetypal warrior man who worships a god that is not Yahweh thinks he can buy a cure from a lowly representative of a conquered people, but he finds out the opposite, is humbled, and ends up believing in Israel's God. This is formulaic almost to the point of being boring until we start noticing, noticing some things that take us to a deeper level. For example, the first thing that caught my eye is that the only reasonable, likable, practical, and helpful people in the entire story are those without any status whatsoever. Naaman's unnamed servant girl has and shares information that points him toward Elisha, and the servants he takes with him on his journey are the ones who persuade their master that he would be foolish not to try a simple remedy. This reminded me of one of the first lessons I learned as a hospital chaplain on a renal unit. <clears throat> the person who knew the most about which patients were having a hard time was the woman who cleaned the rooms. She would tell me who had gotten bad news, who needed a visit, and who was lonely. She was my best teacher, and I learned from her not to overlook the unexpected guides who bring wisdom to us. But what else can this multi-layered story teach us as 21st century people of faith, and what is the application of it to our lives? There are many lessons embedded in the story of Naaman and Elisha, but the one that speaks most strongly to me is that there is, is an enormous difference between healing and cure. I think most of us have known someone or have been that someone who would, pay, who would pay anything to be cured of a devastating physical disease like cancer or a debilitating emotional illness like depression or an addiction that ruptures our soul and creates permanent fault lines in the lives of those around us. And we probably also have known people who have been cured of these things, but have undergone no change at all in their worldview or in the way they treat others. In plain terms, a cure means eliminating all evidence of disease but healing means becoming whole. A cure is a measurable metrics kind of thing that is declared from the outside. But healing, 
Healing is an inside job, a physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual process that takes someone who has stage four cancer to the point where they can say, I'm living with cancer, not dying of it. Or the tender and loving parent who was a battered child and can now say, those who harmed me intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Or the recovering addict who says, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I love you and I want to make those amends that you need from me so you can be restored to wholeness. Healing, I think, is a slow tectonic shift in our hearts and souls. And one of the best things about it is that we don't have to understand healing to be healed. Most of us here today probably believe in the application of reason to faith and in the importance of both science and religion. And we're thankful for every advance in medicine and technology that can enhance the quality of our lives. So when we enter a wilderness where life's hardness seems more than we can bear, and where reason and science and medicine and technology are of no use, it's often difficult for us to yield to the mystery of the Holy Spirit and open ourselves to its healing touch. But when we dare to soften ourselves and befriend our own vulnerability, newness happens in our souls. We come to know that even though God will probably not make everything okay on the outside, mercy and grace will give us the stamina to stand in this hard place and be present to God in honest ways. We remember to give thanks in everything, even if we can't give thanks for everything. We find new assurance that our faith can make us whole. We begin to experience freedom from fear and despair and emotional paralysis. And we are able to welcome the generative power of the Holy Spirit into whatever our lives have become. Naaman traveled a long distance believing that his wealth and power and connections could buy him a cure. They couldn't, but what he received when he set these aside was not only clear skin, but also a newness of heart and a new allegiance to the God of Israel. All of us here today have been wounded and healed into newness in one or many ways, And we're all described in the late Dutch theologian Henry Nouwen's important book, The Wounded Healer, Ministry in Contemporary Society. There's a common misconception in churches that ministers are called and everyone else just has a job, but nothing could be further from the truth. Each of you is a minister and each of you has the ability to offer healing to another person. In the Gospel reading today, Jesus gives us guidelines about how to do this. For years, when I thought about the followers of Jesus, I thought only of the 12 apostles he originally called. But there were many more, 
And the 10th chapter of Luke begins with his sending out of 70 additional ones, just like he had sent out the original 12 in pairs in chapter 9, instructing them to travel light, stay where they were welcome, and leave where they were not, and to heal. During the summer of 2015, when I was a chaplain intern at a large hospital system in Austin, the lessons of Luke 10 were in my face every day. The first week, I was certain that I could not make my assigned rounds without my purse slung over my shoulder. By the second week, I was down to something the size of what used to be called a fanny pack, which I stuffed under my arm and dropped at least 20 times a day. By week three, I was wearing a blazer with two pockets in which I could carry a small notebook, a ballpoint pen, a flip phone, lunch money, and some mints. Lesson one, traveling light physically made all the difference. I could go into a room and simply be with someone without worrying about where my own possessions were. My hands were free to hold a patient's hand when we prayed together or to lay my hand on their head when they asked for a blessing or to hug a grieving family member. And I also soon learned that traveling light spiritually and emotionally and ethically is equally important and that we need to set aside our own agendas about what healing is and how it can be accomplished. Lesson two, offer healing to everyone, but stay only where you're welcome. One of the chaplains I worked with in Austin was Nancy, who believed that everyone wanted to have the Bible read to them and be prayed with. On the one and only day I was paired up with her, our (laughs) our first visit was to a male patient in an orthopedic unit. Nancy introduced herself and me and told the patient that she was there to pray with him. When he kindly told her that he was an atheist and did not want prayer, I stepped toward the door of the room and started to leave. But Nancy was stunned by his rejection of her offer, and she immediately shifted to an insistence that he at least let her read scripture to him. With understandably less patience, He said he didn't want that either. In a final desperate attempt to be the kind of healer she was sure God wanted her to be with this man, Nancy said, well, how about if I lay hands on you and say a silent prayer? The words that came out of the patient's mouth are unrepeatable here, (laughs) but redacted and sanitized, they were basically, get out now before I call security, and were accompanied by a reach into the bedside drawer and a deftly thrown Gideon Bible. As I watched it graze Nancy's left elbow as she got to the door, she turned around and screeched at him, well, God bless you. (laughs) Good gospel lesson here. Not everyone wants what we as people of faith might think of as spiritual healing And that is more than okay. Like the 70 who were sent out, 
we can initially offer a healing presence to everyone, wisely discern who is receptive to it, and then continue offering it to them. And in the meantime, we keep on praying for the healing of all people. Lesson three, when we offer healing to someone, we need to be connected to what is greater than ourselves. For the apostles, it was their awareness of and belief in the healing power of Jesus and their hope for the kingdom of God. For many of us in this room, it is a sense of the Holy Spirit. But I think we also need to get and stay connected to that greater thing called suffering humanity and to an appreciation of the many ways healing takes place through all religions and cultures. In the mathematics of healing, there are percentages far greater than 100, and Christianity is not the only path to wholeness. Every person in this world has been broken. That's how the light gets in. What we do with our own brokenness and the light it has given us is best done in the company of other compassionate healers wherever we may find them. But healing is not just something for people who are physically or emotionally broken or ill. It's also for us as people who believe in the church as the body of Christ and who value and cherish responsible participation in the life and the health of that body. During the past two years, I've done ministry and consulting with several churches in Houston that are wounded because of what members and ministers have done to each other. Today's epistle reading from the book of Galatians speaks strongly and plainly to them and to all of us about how we can heal this woundedness within the body of Christ. By the time Paul wrote his letter to the churches in Galatia around 50 AD, it was evident to him that living in a religious community was not ever going to be a stroll in Hermann Park, and that those factions within the early churches who wanted to preserve Jewish laws and practices were oppressing Greeks and other non-Jews who wanted to join. So Paul offered some wonderful lessons to the Galatians about extending healing to each other. In today's language, they would read like this. Forgive each other. Be gentle with each other. Bear each other's burdens. Make a searching inventory of your own life and do the work that is yours to do. Have humility. Work for the common good, starting with your own community of faith. Build a common life with each other. Be unselfish. Let God's spirit do growth work in you. Remember that God is always creating healing and newness and freedom among us. Each of us has both healed and unhealed places within us, and each of us is a minister who can offer healing. Like Naaman, the receiving of healing requires us to accept our dependence on others, 
to open and surrender to what we cannot rationally understand and to feel the newness that healing brings us. Like the 70 who were sent out by Jesus, the offering of healing requires us to travel light, to rely on the grace and provision of God, and to meet wounded humanity where it is. And like Paul's good instruction in Galatians, how we extend healing to each other in our churches will determine the kind of healing we can give to those who are not within a community of faith. So much is in need of healing. Each of us, our relationships, our churches, our society and culture, politics, our predatory economy, the environment. As with anything in life, we can only give what we have. And Jesus' metaphor of just a cup of cold water was a grace-filled way of saying that it is altogether moral to start small and to stay small as we do the holy work of healing. As a person of faith, I've come to believe that there is new life that can transcend and flow out of difficulty, that a sense of newness is the essence and heart and proof of healing, and that to offer healing is to be healed. The familiar words of St. Teresa of Avila remind me every day that Christ has no body on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which the compassion of Christ looks out to the world. Yours are the feet which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless others now. This is how we do the slow and joyful and difficult work of building a common life as followers of Jesus. This is the condition of our servant hearts as we give and share the healing we have received. This is why we are here. May God continue to heal us into newness. Grace to you and peace.